Jesus calls ordinary, unlikely people to his team to live in unity and to do extraordinary things, eternal things, in his name. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. We have a room full of ordinary people in here. You look around, you look up here, all around us, we see ordinary people. Ordinary people. I doubt that any of us are going to be the subject of a national news story or epic uh, documentary or something. At least I hope not. I hope none of us are the subject of a national news story, because generally that's not for a good thing, right? Maybe for a good thing we'd like to see that, but... uh, But probably not. Probably any of us aren't going to be leading the news or being interviewed on a cable channel anytime soon here. We are just ordinary people. But God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, doesn't he? He uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Even if that ordinary person does something like seeing someone in a restaurant and praying for them. That might be something that God uses powerfully to do something extraordinary in that woman's life. We don't know, do we? And so in our message here today, we're looking at a a group of men that were very, very ordinary men, but God used them to change the world forever. And God has used you to change the world as well, to change the worlds of people here in this community. God uses ordinary people and does extraordinary things, eternal things, through them. So we're continuing in our series in here today, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just a reminder then that we are using as our text here then, a book called One Perfect Life. Uh, It is a book by John MacArthur, and it takes the, there we are, and it takes the Um, the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, harmonizes them and puts them together into one flowing story in chronological order then. So that's what I really like about that. So with this then, we are continuing here in our study in the life of Jesus Christ. We are in Jesus' second year of earthly ministry. And we're seeing here where he puts together this very ordinary unlikely team of 12 apostles. And here is that I want us to take away from this, is that Jesus calls ordinary, unlikely people to his team to live in unity and to do extraordinary things, eternal things, in his name. Before we look at the text here then today, uh, we see a little context here. Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, they were seeking to kill him. Why? Why did they want to kill him? You would think, boy, this is someone you'd really want to listen to, right? But they wanted to kill him. Why? Because he was making extraordinary claims about himself, that he was claiming to be God. And we saw last week how he had done that, how he was claiming that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that he was Lord of the Sabbath. And they recognized, again, a claim there. 
to him saying he's God. And they wanted to kill him for that. So with that then, let's look at our text here then for today. Receive, but when Jesus knew it, that is what they were plotting and scheming against him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there with his disciples to the sea. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from Decapolis and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about to touch him, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So first we see here Jesus doing some compassionate healing, that there were great multitudes that followed him. You know, the formal religious leadership establishment While there were some among them who believed in Jesus or they were open to him, many of them or most of them did not. They were opposed to him. Because, for a number of reasons, but one of them just being that here they just could not understand that how could this man in front of them be God? I think we would probably, if we were living back then, you think we might struggle a little bit with that too? But then again, like we talked about in our class here this morning, sure, we can understand why they might struggle with that, but when he's doing the miracles he's doing, when he's fulfilling the prophecies he is, and then later when he rises from the dead, case closed, isn't it? But here they were, they were struggling with him, these these Pharisees, but not the ordinary people. They were drawn powerfully to him. And so even as the opposition from the official ranks was growing against him, the crowds were getting larger and larger that followed him. Now we're going to see eventually Jesus say some things that might surprise us a little bit to actually discourage these great crowds from following him. Why? Because he wanted genuine followers, not just people who were there to see something exciting or interesting. Right? So, great multitudes were following, and the text tells us, he healed them all. You know, we wonder, how many miracles did Jesus perform? Well, you know, if we open up the scriptures, we go, oh, well, there was this one where, you know, he healed a blind man here. 
Uh, let's see, and uh, he turned the water into wine there. You know, we add them up, there's like 40-some miracles that Jesus performed. But Jesus didn't perform only those miracles, did he? He performed thousands of miracles. We have 40-some that are specifically in the text with specific persons and situations that we read about. But like we have here, and coming up soon, there were thousands of miracles that he performed unlike any other prophet of God ever had. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes, he was, but he was much more than a prophet, wasn't he? And so he healed them. He healed them all. And he warned them then not to make him known. Again, we might think that seems a little strange as well. Why did he warn them? Don't don't tell people about... I mean, the news was already out there, right? But he warns them, no, don't be telling more people. Why? Because the people misunderstood his mission, that he had not come to be a political messiah or savior to set the people free from Roman domination. And so the more people then who followed him for those reasons, the harder it would be for him to accomplish the mission that he had come to do, which was to be what a spiritual savior. We're quoted then here, Isaiah's prophecy is quoted. And in that prophecy, we see that Jesus was a chosen servant, my servant whom I have chosen, that he was the one that God the Father chose to be the Messiah, the Deliverer, my servant, my chosen one. I will put my spirit upon him. Well, Jesus is God. Why did he need the Holy Spirit upon him? Well, yes, he was God, wasn't he? He was the Son of God. But he was also what? He was man. And just like you need the Spirit and I need the Spirit, the man Jesus, the Spirit, came upon him and ministered in him and through him. We also see here, did Jesus come for his people, the Jews? Yes, he did. But who else did he come for? The Gentiles, everyone, right? And so we see a profound testimony in this that Jesus came for Gentiles as well as Jews. We see his humility in this. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he didn't come to say, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm the Messiah. I've come to deliver you all. But no, but he was humble. He was a humble servant. He was also compassionate with the weak and the vulnerable. The people overlooked the bruised reed, a smoking flax. It's a symbolic language there for broken, weak, vulnerable, overlooked people. That he came for them. And that he is a victorious, conquering Savior. Till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. Not just the Jews, but Gentiles as well. He came for all. I like this little detail we're given here. That as all these people were coming to him, crowding upon him just to touch him so they could be healed, Jesus very wisely, Jesus was a very wise man, don't you think? What did he do? They were along the sea, along the Sea of Galilee. He said, "Um, get a little boat ready right here. Why? Just in case the crowds would crush him. He could step into the boat and go out a little bit into the, into the, to the lake there, the Sea of Galilee, 
So he could continue to talk with them, but they wouldn't crush him. Although I wonder, do you think some of them might have even have come into the water after they may have, and they would have to be ready to go further out then, perhaps, at that point. And so here he is healing the people. He's delivering them from evil spirits. And demons were crying out, you are the son of God. It was interesting, demons sometimes have better theology than religious people, don't they? And they recognized who he was, they saw him, said, you are the son of God. But Jesus did not want their testimony. He didn't want the testimony of demons. He wanted the testimony of his works, his miracles, and the scriptures, and the voice of God as Father. He wanted that testimony. He didn't want the testimony of demons. text goes on to tell us then, Now it came to pass in those days that he went up on the mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, those he himself wanted, and they came to him. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power, and to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he also gave the name Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples. And a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Now Jesus had many disciples. There were many who followed him, many students who followed him. But now he wanted to choose from among them 12, 12 in particular, for special training and purpose. Now, I know with the the, the movies perhaps we've seen on the life of Christ, we have this idea of like when Jesus began his earthly ministry, here he is, and he has what, these 12, the 12 disciples with him, and we see them going around, Jesus and the 12, right? That's the image we have in our minds. But is that what really happened? No, there were many, many who followed him. And it was only into his second year of ministry that he specifically called out from them, 12 in particular, that we would come to be known as the 12, the apostles, right? And he calls them out for a reason. Why 12, by the way? Twelve tribes of Israel, right? And so he calls twelve then who would be the human foundation of the church. Now Christ himself is the church, the foundation of the church, isn't he? But they would be the ones through whom he would primarily work to establish the church. And Jesus says they will sit on twelve thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. And so these are the twelve that he called. Now, some of you might be thinking, getting a little ahead of the story here, and saying, well, wait a minute. 
He called the twelve, and they're going to judge the tribes of Israel. But one of them betrayed him. That's only eleven, right? So what do they do? The book of Acts, what did they do? They replaced Judas with a twelfth one, who what? Who had been with them, and what did they want? The one who has been with them all along as well, right? So don't believe the movies when you just see Jesus and 12 men walking around the countryside, right? There were others as well, but only 12 were chosen to be apostles. So the time has come for Jesus to choose these 12. And he went up on the mountain and he prayed all night in preparation for choosing the 12. The disciple, you remember, is a, is a student or a learner. A follower? An apostle means one who is sent. There's there's a special calling and purpose that was on these apostles, these sent ones. And these apostles would be given certain responsibilities and authority. They would have authority to preach. They would be given power to heal. And they would be given authority to cast out demons. I like how we're told in the text there that two of them, Jesus had a nickname for them. James and John, they were brothers. He called them what? Boanerges, sons of thunder. What do you think you have to be like to get a nickname, sons of thunder? Very powerful personalities, right? Very outspoken. Maybe a little, uh, today we might say, we might, they, they might have to go in for some anger management, right? <laughs> Anybody here had ever, ever had, no, don't admit it, but probably nobody wants to admit it. Okay, we've got someone here who's going to admit had to have some anger management, right? So you were a daughter of thunder right there, right? So absolutely. So who is surprised that she is a daughter of thunder? Anybody? Yeah, anybody surprised by that? Okay, no. God has done a lot of work in you, sister, hasn't he? He really has, so... And a lot more to go. That's right. So these sons of thunder, they had very powerful personalities. And they were ready. Like one time when there was a community that was rejecting Jesus, what are they, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume them. Isn't it interesting that one of these sons of thunder, John, would later be known as the apostle of love? Jesus gets a hold of people, doesn't he? Changes them. Some powerful teaching, healing, and deliverance. Text tells us that Jesus stood on a level place then to teach them. As he stood on this level place to teach them, he's teaching his apostles, but of course there are many others that are there too that are hearing and listening. And he is about to teach. He has called them. He has prayed all night. He has made his choice. He's called these 12 from among them to be the apostles. And he's standing on a level plane. And he's teaching them. There is a, a phrase that we now have for this teaching that he was going to give them. You know what we, you know what we call that? The Sermon on the Mount. Luke says it was on a level plane, right? So stay to trust me, stay tuned for much more to come on that, on this Sermon on the Mount. That's where we're going next here with this. But the Sermon on the Mount, he's called the Twelve, 
And now he is giving them instruction, the Sermon on the Mount, about true righteousness. He's going to give them instruction in true righteousness as opposed to the righteousness of the Pharisees. But not just for them, but for others who were listening there as well. And who else? Us here today and what true righteousness means. So he stood on a level place. We'd give them the Sermon on the Mount soon. But the whole multitude sought to touch him because power went out from them. And he healed most of them. Now he healed all of them. Thousands of miracles. I'd like us to reflect a little bit on the twelve. Remember, these were, these were ordinary men. Uh, a Bible scholar, Mary Fairchild, tells us uh, about some, uh, a little bit about these 12 men. Peter. How many of us can relate to Peter? That picture of Peter we see in the, in the scriptures, right? One minute he's walking on the water by faith, and the next he's sinking in doubt. But at least he had the, the faith to get out. How many of us would have gotten out of the boat in the first place, right? He was impulsive and emotional. Do we have any impulsive and emotional people in this church? <laughs> any sons and daughters of thunder? Yeah. Okay. He was impulsive and emotional. And he's known, too, for what he did for denying Jesus even, didn't he? When the pressure was on. But even so, he was a disciple who was dearly loved by Christ. And he held a special place among them. He became the, the leader among the twelve. Andrew was Peter's brother. Andrew was a disciple or a follower of John the Baptist who left John the Baptist to follow the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Andrew lived in the shadow of his more famous brother, Peter. But how did Peter come to know Christ as Messiah? Through Andrew. Andrew brought Peter to the Christ. So sometimes we think, you know, that maybe our personality isn't as strong as someone else's, but isn't it interesting the one who is not considered to be the stronger person is the one who brought him to Christ, right? An ordinary man. So Andrew led Peter to Christ, and then he kind of steps into the background then. James... He and his brother John, the sons of thunder. James was an early disciple of Jesus. And Peter, James, and John were considered kind of the inner circle of leadership among the twelve. And he and his brother John got that nickname, sons of thunder, what? because they had such powerful personalities and maybe needed a little anger management. Right? But he would also be the one to be the first of the apostles to be martyred for his faith. John, this other fiery son of thunder, who would come to be known as the apostle of love. He never referred to himself in this gospel by name, but simply said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And of course, according to tradition, John outlived all of the other disciples that the other twelve would give their lives, were martyred for the faith. But John, he suffered too for the faith, but he did not die a martyr's death. 
And of course, we know him as the author of the Gospel of John, but also what? First, second, and third John and Revelation. Philip, Philip, one of the first followers of Christ, he also was known as someone who would bring others to Christ along with Nathaniel. In John 14, Philip says, uh, says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replies, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to see what God the Father is like? Jesus says, look at me, because he perfectly reflected the Father. Jesus wasn't saying he was the Father. He isn't. But he was saying he reflects the Father. If you want to know what the Father's like, look at me. Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, here was a man that Jesus said of him, one in whom there is no guile. He had a very, he had a pure heart. And he was the one that when Jesus called him, Jesus said to him, I saw you under the tree. And Nathaniel realized what Jesus was saying. That Jesus said, was saying, Look, I saw you praying. Under the, not like, I saw you under the tree over there. No, he heard him praying. And he realized then that he is the son of God. Levi, also known as Matthew, what was his job? He was a tax collector. They weren't very popular folks in that day. What? They, were, they were seen as collaborators, traitors, cheats, thieves. But Jesus had no qualms about calling even a tax collector to be not only a disciple of his, but to be one of the apostles, no less. Thomas. Poor Thomas, what does he get uh, known as? Doubting Thomas. But here was the thing about in Thomas's defense, we also see him before then saying that he was ready to go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus, right? And how many of you, let's be honest, if we were living back then, if we were one of them, and we heard he's alive, would you want to see for yourself? Of course you would, right? And, of course, he did see that Jesus had indeed rose. James, James the less. How would you like to be known as the less guy? James the lesser. You know, not, not big James, the other James, the lesser guy, right? Well, one author says it's quite possible that his complete anonymity reveals something profound about his character. He didn't need a claim. <laughs> Simon the zealot. What was the zealot? These were folks who were violently opposed to Roman rule. How do you think Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector got along? You think Jesus did that on purpose? I do. Thaddeus, also known as as Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas. You want to be the other guy this time. You don't want to be Judas Iscariot. You want to be the other Judas, right? And then, of course, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Yeah, I would imagine that these men had, had some very interesting conversations around the campfire. But you, you think Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector ever got in a fist fight or anything? Do you think they ever had to break up a, a fight among them? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But you know, by purely human standards, you look at these men, these men were really not the best choices to serve as the human foundation of the church. They were very ordinary men. They had no formal training in the rabbinical schools. 
There were some temperament issues among them. There were some questionable political attitudes. Hmm, let's see. No formal training, temperament issues, questionable political attitudes. Talking about Wonder Lake Bible Church here, isn't he? So. <laughs> no, he's talking about every church, isn't it, right? And yet, and yet, Jesus chose them. You know, I saw something a long time ago, I think it's funny, that uh, is, uh, uh, there are these, uh, now like these search firms, headhunters, you know, we call them where they'll, where someone is looking for a, a, to fill a position and they'll hire this firm, a, a, uh, a consulting firm, to get resumes of people and make recommendations, you know, for, for someone to hire. And I love this story. This is uh, if, if Jesus then hired a professional consulting firm to choose his 12 apostles here. And so it reads like that. And, and so this is, uh, this is the results of this uh, profession. It's called Jordan Management Consultants. And they've uh, done a report on these resumes that uh, Jesus has sent in to them on these men who would be his apostles and getting the report back. So here, I want to, I happen to have a copy of the report here. Would you like to hear this here this morning? So this is to Jesus, son of Joseph, uh, Woodcrafters Carpenter Shop, Nazareth, from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, such as an auditor will include some general, much as an auditor will include general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. Isn't that good to know? It says, it is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings. And they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory, and we wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. 
And we laugh about that, but could, couldn't you see something like that happening? That they would have looked at him and said, well, you know, of those 12, there are 11, forget them. You know, this guy Judas Iscariot, though, he looks pretty good. I'd choose him, Jesus. Yeah. These were ordinary people. But God did extraordinary things through them, didn't he? Now I say extraordinary things. I don't mean necessarily things that are going to be written up in a newspaper. Actually, I guess I'm showing my age. Written up in a newspaper. Things get written up in a newspaper. Okay, that's going to appear on your tablet with you know the, the, the digital headlines of the day, okay? I'm not going to show up on, uh, on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. Don't boo, all right? So... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, all right, I'm going to keep moving here. Um, so not that the kinds of things that are going to show up in the news here type extraordinary things, but actually I would suggest to you things that are actually far more extraordinary than anything that would get you in the news. I'm talking extraordinary things about what? Things that make an eternal difference in people's lives. Those are the extraordinary things that God does through ordinary people like you and me. So you might wonder, well, well, how can ordinary people like us do such extraordinary things? Well, certainly not by our own power or resources, right? But how? By relying on the power of the Spirit to transform our characters and empower us for service. So that's first off. How can you, how can I, as ordinary people, do extraordinary things? How can God use us to make an eternal difference in people's lives? To change our world around us? Starts with our own submission to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Transform our characters to empower us for service. And maybe there's that person you meet at that restaurant and the Spirit says, go up to them and pray for them. Talk to them, pray for them. And maybe you're going to say something that God is going to use change that person's life forever. Or maybe you get a text at 1 o'clock in the morning that God put it on that person's heart to contact you. And God used you to make an eternal difference, do an extraordinary thing in that person's life, right? So how do we do extraordinary things? By yielding to the leadership, the rule of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change our characters, our attitudes, our priorities, and to empower us for service. Maybe to say something that you didn't even know or think was all that important at the time you said it, but God was in it and said, gave you those words that touched that person's heart, changed that life forever. And you didn't even know it. Relying on the power of the Spirit to transform our characters and powers. But here's another thing that I want us to reflect on here today. God has not called you or me to be a bunch of lone rangers out there doing this work, has he? He has put us together into this body, and there is great power when God is working through his people together, isn't there? 
So it's ministering to get individually, certainly, like you did, like you did, but also ministering together in love and unity as the body of Christ. I want us just to reflect a little bit here on something. I really I like this phrase in Scripture, one another. It's two words in English, but in the New Testament Greek there, alelone, alelone, one word, meaning together, one another, one another. It's used a hundred times in the New Testament, giving instruction to us about how we are to live with alelone, one another, one another. And if you look at these commands, these one another commands in Scripture, the great majority of them have as their focus one of three critical attitudes, three critical attitudes that these one another commands address, love, unity, and humility. How can ordinary people like us do extraordinary things? Well, by our own yieldedness to the Spirit, but then also together as the body of Christ, when we live together in love and unity and humility toward one another. God does extraordinary things then through that. Love, one-third of them, of these one another's, are commands to love one another. Love one another. Through love, serve one another. How about this one? Tolerate one another in love. You like that? In Ephesians 4, 2. Tolerate one another in love. Some of you think, yeah, I know, there's somebody in here. I'm not going to point him out now, but, but it's the guy sitting right next to me. And, no, that you tolerate what we have to tolerate. You know what? Somebody else in this room might be looking at you saying, and I have to tolerate that person, right? <laughs> be devoted to one another in love. Love. Love one another. Unity, another third of them. So a third of them are about loving one another. Another third of them are about maintaining unity. By the way, we don't create unity in the church. We maintain it, keep it. Who creates unity? God has, Jesus has, the Spirit put us together. We're already unified in him. So our job isn't to make unity, create unity. Our job is to maintain the unity that God has already created among us. Unity doesn't mean we all, it's not uniformity of opinion or practice or preference, is it? Unity means what? We're together on the stuff that really matters. The same ultimate priorities, goals. Christ-likeness, godliness, accomplishing the missions of the kingdom. Unity on those matters. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Fortunately, we do not have any grumblers in this church. I have never heard a grumble, nary a word in, some, in many years here. Okay, maybe there was one or two. All right, all right. Be of the same mind with one another. Same mind doesn't say be of the same opinion. Now, it means be of the same mind, that even though we may have different opinions, we're united in what's really important, right? Accept one another. How about this one in Galatians? Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. This is a pretty powerful picture, but we can do that 
with our words and our attitudes, can't we? Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another, and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. That also never happens in this church. Confess sins to one another. And the last one then, humility. About another 15% of these stress an attitude of humility and obedience and deference among believers. Give preference to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Be subject to one another. Love, unity, humility. When we are together as God's people, exhibiting those attitudes and practices, do you think God is going to do extraordinary things in that body of believers? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what? Jesus calls ordinary, unlikely people like us to his team to live in unity and do extraordinary things in his name. So I'd ask you, as we were reflecting upon those one another's here, those commands, what one another command will you obey in the power of the Holy Spirit this week? How might God use you this week to do something eternal, extraordinary in the life of someone else? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have a Savior in Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us every resource, every resource we need, Lord, to grow in our knowledge of you, in our love of you, that relationship with you, that your spirit indwells us to transform our characters, to produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that your spirit indwells us. May we submit to his leadership in us, Lord, as he transforms our character and empowers us for service. But also then, Lord, may we understand the power that there is collectively in the body of Christ. May we seek to maintain that bond of unity that you have already created amongst us, Lord. May we seek to maintain that unity. May we love one another as Christ has loved us. May we have that humble attitude toward one another to seek to honor the other ahead of ourselves. And through that, Lord, may you do extraordinary things through this very ordinary collection of people here in this church. Do great things, we pray, in this community. For the people in this church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.